Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we've got an extra episode, a Sunday supplement, talking about a really important book about perhaps the most important political figure of the 20th century, Gandhi. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. This is a conversation that I recorded with Ramachandra Guha, who is one of India's leading contemporary historians and public intellectuals, and he's written an absolutely epic two-volume biography of Mahatma Gandhi. He's just published the second volume, Gandhi, The Years That Changed the World, 1914 to 1948. So this is about the period where Gandhi really did change everything. We've talked a bit about Indian politics on this podcast in the past, but probably not enough. And we haven't talked enough about this period of history. But also, this is about a completely different way of doing politics. And we're going to discuss that too. We began by talking about who in the Western tradition or outside of India could we possibly compare Gandhi to? So Gandhi is maybe unique, almost unique in 20th century politics in that he kind of transcends politics. He's the father of the nation. It's very hard to think of anyone to compare him to. Maybe Mandela in South Africa, maybe Abraham Lincoln going further back. He, he sort of stands above politics. And yet, as you show in your book, as we know about Mandela, as we know about Lincoln, it was a deeply political life. He fought against his opponents, he took sides, he's identified with a party. You know, Lincoln is a Republican, Gandhi is, is Congress. He made mistakes, he made enemies, he made compromises. If we just start with today and then take it back, but today, Gandhi today, that the father of the nation Gandhi and the, the political Gandhi who was on a side in politics, which one dominates in, in Indian consciousness? Because there's a kind of there's a permanent contest between the two. Well, in India, he's. Uh certainly not as central a figure as Lincoln would be in America today or de Gaulle in, in France. He is occasionally disparate, sometimes forgotten. Uh, if he's at all honoured and acknowledged, it's outside the political system. It's by environmentalists, human rights activists, you know, proponents of interreligious peace and so on. So it's, it's, that's the sort of transcendent Gandhi. Yeah, yeah. So in politics, except for the ritual in, invocations on his birthday, the Prime Minister will visit his, his memorial on 2nd of October. And some amoral, occasionally corrupt, sometimes bigoted prime minister will shut his eyes for 30 seconds and sit in front of Gandhi's memorial. But I think... Naming he, no names. Naming no names. But he informs social life, civil society activism, much more than politics per se. The other thing you could say about him is that unlike Mandela or Lincoln or de Gaulle, who during their lives were thought of as being primarily political, though what you describe is a deeply political life, even throughout, there was always this sort of tension in how people saw him. Is, is he above or not? So you have an epigraph to the book from Lord Willingdon, the Viceroy in 1933, who says of Gandhi, at the bottom of every move of which he makes, he always says he is inspired by God. 
yet one discovers the political manoeuvre. And then you have another great quote later on, I think it's from a, an American profile, a journalist saying, he's part Jesus Christ, part Tammany Hall, and part your father, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part God, part yeah. corrupt politician, and part yeah. your dad telling you what to do. Yeah, yeah. So th- in his life, was that always there, that sort of... People didn't know which Gandhi they were dealing with. So there were episodes when he was intensely political. When he was organizing the Congress Party, he was trying to put his people in positions of influence. He was mobilizing popular action against the British. After the popular movement had either failed or stalled, and then he would start negotiations with the Viceroy. He was trained as a lawyer, so he was also a meticulous draftsman of petitions, letters, arguments. And in between, there were these political struggles and political intrigue. There was his work for social reform, for Hindu-Muslim harmony, for eradicating untouchability. And there was a third side to him, which were his personal obsessions, which diet, health, celibacy, we'll which, come, sometimes, we'll come to which sometimes took a whole year. So he would take a whole year. There was a, there's a chapter in my book called Spinning in Sabarmati. So he takes a year's sabbatical, not the kind of sabbatical you would take to write a book, perhaps from Cambridge. But all he's doing is spinning and meditating and reading different kinds of texts. So he was many things in one. Politics was vital, but didn't consume his life in the way it consumed the life of other modern statesmen. And so it opened him up to the charge, which in 21st century politics is the toxic charge, which is hypocrisy. And in a way, that's what Willingdon is saying. The the idea that he's this guy who's pretending to be above it, and he isn't above it. Did that damage him in his life? I mean, it's a recurrent theme that the people who don't like him, who can't deal with him, say he's the ultimate hypocrite. Well, I think imperial proconsuls so it is hypocritical. So, of course, Churchill, Willingdon, people in South Africa. But I think Indians saw the different sides to him. So they could take him in all his varied hues. And, you know, I say in the beginning of the book, and I quote Gandhi right in the preface where he says, the achievement of freedom is one part of my life, but there's also Hindu-Muslim harmony and untouchability. At different points in my life, one note predominates and then the other. It's like a pianist playing different things at different times. So I think that's the way to see it. Yeah, and you have the, the quote underneath the Willingdon one is Gandhi saying, I make no hobgoblin of consistency. I am true to myself from moment to moment, which is a beautiful line. So the, the political Gandhi, if we talk about his life, if we had to characterize it, so one word you can attached to him is he was a nationalist. He was some kind of nationalist. But again... I would, I would use the term patriot rather than nationalist. Okay, so that, that was what I was going to ask you, because nationalism, again, is a 21st century word with particular connotations. What, so what kind of patriot was so he? So he wanted to free his people of foreign rule. But I think what is special about Gandhi's nationalism compared to other Indian nationalists of its time, his time is that the Indian National Congress, which is a political organisation he inherited and led... Before him was a debating club of middle-class men, often English-speaking, but middle-class men, professionals, lawyers, professors, doctors. He made it a mass organization, bringing in peasants, workers, women, and operating in the vernacular, many different languages of India. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is, uh, and I think that's where I think his idea, understanding of nationalism is fundamentally different from classical European nationalism, is that he refused to reduce Indianness to a particular language or a particular religion. You know, Pakistan is the homeland of Muslims and Urdu is the uniting language, right? Just as, you know, you know Linda Connie's great book on Britain, and which talks about the consolidation of the nation on religion and language and so on. So I think these are two very special features of Gandhi's nationalism, that religious and linguistic pluralism is fundamental to 
his project to bring people together. And this is partly because he spent so much time in the diaspora. And in South Africa, you know, he met people of very different backgrounds. He had, he had Parsi, Muslim, Christian colleagues. His closest associates were Tamils, who are as far away from Gujaratis as is possible within the Indian subcontinent. This was a very different, distinctive form of nationalism, which was suited to the large, complex, heterogeneous character of India. One of the things I was struck by in the book Gandhi is known for being a critic of Western civilization and also Western democratic politics, which he saw as fundamentally corrupt. But there's a point where he says, or he wishes, that India could have something like the American party system, Republicans and Democrats, because it's not denominational, it's not sectional. They're each, in their different ways, trying to represent the nation. So there is some crossover with a a kind of idealized version of the... But it's one it's closest to is the American one. Yeah. You know, in the early 1909. Gandhi said, I don't believe in parliamentary democracy. You know, he was reacting against all Western institutions. But he comes back to India, he sees the operation of councils, he sees what's happening in England. I think the rise of the Labour Party is very important for him, because he sees that there can be comparative politics and a different kind of politics can emerge. And then he comes to this formulation where he tells Jinnah, where Jinnah is organising the Muslim League to represent Muslims. He said, please have some Hindus and Christians also as your members and oppose our policies. So we can have, you know, you can be slightly left and slightly right to different... But he evolves. I think that whether it is with politics or with caste or with race or with gender, he's continuously refining, opening out his mind and shedding some of his youthful prejudices. So it's very important not to quote him out of context. And that vision of a democracy and of a nation where two broad movements compete to represent the nation as a whole in the 21st century and not just in India, after all, it it's seems... It's, you think it's gone? It's going, going. Uh, do you see it alive anywhere? Well, I'm sure in some smaller European countries. I don't know Europe that well, but I'm sure it's alive in some European countries. You know. Actually, I doubt it. <laughs> you doubt that. Yeah. If people think of Gandhian politics, actually, they probably think more of a method than of a, of a goal. I mean, yeah. the goal is broadly Indian independence, but the method is passive resistance. That's the closest uh, English term for it. And I'll just stop you here, okay. because Gandhi did not like the term passive resistance. It's not passive, it's active. So non-violent... Okay, let's call it non-violent resistance. And and it crosses over into what we call civil disobedience and so on. And one way that whole sort of genre of political action is sometimes characterised is that you you have to think about three parties to the relationship. There's the people doing the resisting, the people who are breaking the law, the people who are oppressing them, punishing them, so that the resistors accept their punishment. And then there's always an audience. So it's it's a kind of act of communication. So the classic, inspired by Gandhi example of Martin Luther King, breaking the law in the American South being oppressed, being water-cannoned by the brutes in the South, the audience is the North. Absolutely. So who was Gandhi's audience for this? In the acts of active, non-violent disobedience, who was he speaking to? So his audience was uh, middle-class, apathetic Indians, and also the global uh, universe. His movements were sympathetically covered in the press. It begins again in South Africa, which is the prequel to this book. So he starts his non-violent struggles in South Africa, and the Telugu and Tamil and Gujarati press in India pick it up. So the homeland is interested in the struggles of the diaspora. Then he returns home and launches much deeper and wider movements of non-violent resistance to spread the message across India. So, you know, in Assam, which is an eastern province right on the borders close to Bangladesh and Burma, very far, far away from the political heartland. If there's a non-violent protest in Bombay and there's water cannons used and there are news reports and oral rumours circulating, it inspires the Assamese also to join the movement. So I think in the first instance, 
it is a way of of course shaming the british rulers within india inspiring other indians who are at the periphery of social life or political action to join the struggle and at the tertiary level to have a global impact the influence of this way of doing politics has spread it's often invoked in a whole range of settings so occupy wall street had a kind of gandian yeah, yeah of course d- yeah. But, of course, the Gandhi version of it, the context was very important. Even though he was appealing to this global audience, there was also a, a goal, and, and it was about shaming the British. Do you think it's over-applied? I mean, I sometimes think, as it were, Gandhi pops up on the T-shirts everywhere, there is a peaceful protest, but they, they don't all have that quite targeted yeah, yeah. goal. And actually, I think Occupy Wall Street, the, who was the audience? I don't think they had an answer to that question for that kind of protest. I don't know, my sense of it is it's become slightly too broadly applied and actually there are, it doesn't work everywhere. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I think Gandhi had a very clear goal. He also had, apart from the long-term goal of shaming the British into leaving India, he had short and medium-term goals of withdrawing certain laws. So his first civil disobedience movement, the Rolet Satyagraha, was aimed at obnoxious law of sedition which is a very harsh criminal law, so to get that off the statute books. The next movement was aimed partly at foreign cloth, so to inspire Indians, boycott foreign cloth and inspire domestic industry. The third movement, which was the Salt March, was about a targeted at a particular regressive tax that hit the poor most. And it's only the last movement, Quit India, which is conceived at a macro level that the British should quit India. So I think in the 21st century context, if there are particular targets you have, I, mean, I go back to maybe 35 years ago in this country, so the women in Greenham Common, you know, we don't want nuclear missiles, right? So that's where I think it's more focused and in some ways uh, most Gandhian. We don't want banks and Wall Street and capitalism. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, it's too generalised and abstruse, right? Exactly, 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 yeah. In his own lifetime, you write at length about this. I suppose what's often held up as the absurd extension in Gandhi's own version of it is during the Second World War, where he, at various points, indicated he would have preferred Hitler to have been resisted in this way, even if we don't call it passive. And to the 21st century reader, it's actually, it's shocking to read it. Did he mean it? I mean, it's hard to know what register. He wrote these letters to Hitler that weren't ever sent, right? The the British prevented them from being sent. Well, he said it, and of course, within his own party, there were more sensible, more pragmatic voices like Jawaharlal Nehru, who finally convinced him that Hitler could not be resisted in that way. And hence the Congress party made the offer, sadly spurned by the Viceroy, that they would join the war effort. But yes, absolutely. So I think Ho Chi Minh is supposed to have said, probably apocryphically, that if Gandhi had been fighting the French, he would have given up non-violence within a week. Now, George Orwell says, talks about this. George Orwell had served in Burma, and several times he writes that, you know, these tactics can only work against the British. So there was a sense in which you could shame certain kinds of Englishmen, not Willingdon, who was the most uh, hardline viceroy, but Irwin and Wavell and some others, and Reading before that. So, yes, I mean, I think Gandhi was sometimes naive in uh, thinking that nonviolence was of very generalized application. I think it is still of enduring relevance in a less than totalitarian state. I mean, you can't resist the ruler of North Korea nonviolently. But as was shown in Eastern Europe, post Gorbachev, when post-Gorbachev, the rulers of Czechoslovakia, Romania, Poland were hesitant, somewhat timid, and were not as ruthless as they could have been in the previous decades, non-violent resistance did work. Likewise, in the American South, 
where it did not work was South Africa, which is the counter example. So the African National Congress is inspired by Gandhi and founded in 1912 and for 50 years committed to Gandhian nonviolence under black leaders like Albert Luthuli and so on. And in the early 1960s, reluctantly and inevitably, they give up on nonviolence. So I think it's clear that there's a particular context in which nonviolence works. I think certainly in something that is not a ruthless and brutal totalitarian regime, nonviolence is always to be the preferred option. And there is another side to it. It's not just nonviolence. It's also it's how you accept the oppression and the punishment that's going to come your way. And I always felt with, with Mandela, though he abandoned one half of the Gandhian project, he absolutely exemplified the other half, which is to speak to your audience by the manner in which you behave under the most appalling conditions. Absolutely. And that's the one aspect of Gandhi that he adopted, the dignity and rectitude and the courage with which he bore the, those years of solitary confinement. But after he was released to have no bitterness, no rancor, to reach out to the whites. You know, in a similar way in which Gandhi and Nehru remained within the Commonwealth and so on. Absolutely. I mean, that, that latter part of Mandela is Gandhian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I mentioned that line from the American journalist that he's part Jesus, part politician, part your dad. But you wouldn't have wanted him to be your dad uh, much. Yes, yes, I mean, yes. so you, your book is you know, its fascinating about, it's not really a private life because there is no private life yes, left, yes. but his treatment of his sons is pretty awful. awful. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he was unbelievably yes. morally demanding. Yes. You were letting him down if you didn't live up to the most extraordinarily absolutely. high standards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And as you say, he treated his sons probably worse than, but it wasn't like he didn't talk like that to the Indian people too. I mean, this man expected the highest moral standards, which also makes him very rare for a political leader of, of his influence. How did he manage to kind of maintain that charismatic hold with that slightly hectoring style? Well, he sort of cajoled he... and preached to the wider audience, but he scolded and hectored his sons. And I think his relationship, his eldest son, is a really truly tragic figure because if you read his, the son's writings, he was brilliant, he was gifted... He was also a patriot. He went to jail several times in South Africa and again in India. He was willing to sacrifice to follow his father, but he wanted his own career. He, he fell in love. His wife died. He wanted to marry again. Gandhi opposed it. He wanted his own career. He took to alcohol. Gandhi was censorious. There's a line here where Gandhi is writing to one of his younger brothers saying, Harilal is not Ganji's stub of alcohol. <laughs> okay. So he absolutely, in his relationships with his elder children, he comes out at his worst. So you wouldn't have wanted him as, his, as your father, sure. One of the things he expects of them is celibacy at various yeah, points, yeah. and of others too. I mean, yeah. not of everyone, but of others. So one yeah. bit that made me laugh out loud in the book, he gets these letters from young men who are basically writing to him about masturbation, right? Yeah. And he writes back very seriously and earnestly, telling them to what avoid to it. Yeah, and, and what kind of diet to follow, yeah. and the morning walks and so on, yeah. yeah. And you say it's very hard to imagine the other leading political figures of the age, Lloyd George, Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, Lenin, Lenin. It's, Lenin, it's Lenin. hard to imagine when writing to Woodrow Wilson about masturbation, well, never mind, well, yeah. Lenin, yeah. writing back. Yeah. But that side to him as well, I mean, so, so just what is the celibacy 
What was he trying to prove? Celibacy is uh, difficult to understand for Protestants and Jews. Right. But it's intrinsic to the religious ethos of Buddhism, Jainism, Catholicism, and Hinduism, not Islam. Right. And Gandhi absorbed it very early from a Jain mentor. And self-control had multiple objectives. One is to show you're pure. You know, in a conservative society, you have to show that you can control your passions because men and women are protesting together. But also self-control as a means of uh, purifying yourself and preparing yourself for political battle. Late in my book, there's a chapter called The Strangest Experiment, where Gandhi somehow makes this extraordinary leap of faith, where he thinks it's because of his lack of self-control in his 70s that Hindus and Muslims are butchering one another. This is patently illogical and bizarre. But somehow it's also an act of vanity that he thinks by controlling his sexual passions, he can control the religious passions of and communal passions of other Indians. But it is a very important part of his makeup. He, as you say, he imposes it on his children, on his close disciples in his ashram. You know, Gandhi had two kinds of disciples. One in the community, in the ashram, and the other were political disciples. So Nehru could eat meat and smoke a cigar, that was no problem. But if you were living with him in the ashram, you had to be vegetarian, you had to, of course, do manual labour, you had to spin every day, and you had to be celibate. You said that one of his influences is environmental. He absolutely does speak to us now when he talks about the insatiability of Western culture and Western civilization. And I've always been struck by the line in Hind Swaraj, which he wrote before the story yeah. you tell here, where he took, as I sort of joke, he invented the internet, where he says, a time is coming where people will just have to press a button and they'll get their food. Press a button and a car will show up. Yeah. It's like Uber, press a yeah. button and the clothes will be there. And he saw this kind of accelerated, insatiable right. consumerism. Yeah. And that's our world. So he saw it coming. Absolutely. And now we live in it. And India is it, as well yeah. as everywhere yeah. else. Yeah. And then you read Gandhi, and, and it's, it resonates. But it's hard to see there is no out. I mean, if the out is celibacy and spinning, there is no out. Where's the no, out he, for us from, from that? There's no out, but he's a moderating voice. I mean, there's a line, right, which I quote right in the epilogue, where he says, if India takes to industrialization after the manner of the West... It will strip the world bare like locusts. Now, India and China may indeed strip the world bare like locusts. And it's happening. And the way to read that is not to say all of us should live like Gandhi, but to say surely there are ways of removing poverty, assuring human dignity, meeting elementary human demands by less energy and resource and intensive means. And of course, moderation of wants is important. I mean, in India, for example, in the country I live in, over the last 25 years, and in China too, there's been a manic desire for every citizen to own a private car. Now, obviously public transport is the way, but people will not travel by metro, but they will only go in their car, which will lead to gridlock, you know, a massive foreign exchange burden because of the import of oil, air pollution, and so on and so forth. So I think Gandhi is a moderating voice in this respect, because it's clear. I mean, I think your astronomer Martin Rees said some years ago, he said, he was a sober scientist, you know, not a green crackpot. At this stage of resource consumption, civilization will last last 100 years, you know, and that may indeed be true. So I think Gandhi is a moderating voice we should listen to. The other thing is meat consumption. So meat consumption, we cannot sustain a world in which China and India starts to consume meat, and it's starting to happen. I mean, are those moderating voices being heard in India at the moment? To a limited extent, but not enough. A couple more questions to finish. So the book tells this epic story of this epic life which ends with Gandhi's assassination. Before it happens, we're on the road to partition. But you asked the question as to when that was set in train. 
And for some people, it predates this entire story that once Muslims had a separate electorate in India in 1909, the path to separation had been set. And you said, that's a real question and you have an answer to it, but you're not going to tell it to us here. So what is your view about that? I mean, this, this is a story which ends on the one hand with Indian independence yeah. and on the so, other hand with partition, correct. which is the, the Gandhian so, tragedy. So my view is that, I mean, I can't clearly say when partition became inevitable. Almost certainly by the late 30s, it was set in stone. Nothing Gandhi could have done to stop it. Not really, nor the British, nor Jinnah and so on. But I do feel partition could have been handled differently in a more compassionate way. I have said in another book of mine, India After Gandhi, that Mountbatten hastened it. Mountbatten didn't prepare the independent dominions of Pakistan and India so that the administrative and police and security staff would be in place. I also feel, contrary to what many Indians think, I'm not nostalgic about a united India. You know, partition could only have been avoided if the cabinet mission plan of 1946 had been accepted. And under that plan, the princely states were more or less autonomous. It was a very weak center. The provinces could have opted out. So you'd have been absolutely balkanized, you know. As an Indian, I know that Pakistan became a frontline state in the Cold War, which saved us, you know, in some ways, because you know, otherwise we'd have had to be fighting all these wars on behalf of the Russians and the Americans and so on, right? So clearly, partition could have been done in a way in which life could have been minimized, it could have been staggered out, the administrative arrangements were not in place, Mountbatten was, you know, was sort of death or glory and death for other people and glory for himself. Also, I feel that India and Pakistan need much better relations, they have to work constructively to solve the Kashmir dispute and so on. But I see this kind of incessant mourning for a united India, you know, I, I have no sympathy with that. On the other hand, India has, or is at the moment, not in the grip of, but there is a dominant strain of the kind of nationalism yes. that Gandhi opposed Absolutely. all his yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. And Gandhi's party congress is, I'm not deeply knowledgeable about this, but it's in a lot of trouble, right, yeah. as an electoral force. Modi is the dominant politician of the age. Is this cyclical? I mean, are we in a pattern where these things come and go, or is this a trend away from the Gandhian version? It's hard to say. There's certainly a trend away from the Gandhian credo of interfaith harmony, religious toleration. There's increasing violence in word and in deed. The abusive language used by politicians today, for example, uh, would appall Gandhi. Political corruption. So all of that is true. But I'd like to say and emphasize something that, which is implicit in the book that Gandhi does not belong to India alone. And in that sense, he's like his great uh, predecessor, the Buddha. India kicked out the Buddha, which included, you know, the message of social equality. After the Buddha died, Brahmanism reasserted itself and the caste system reasserted itself, right? So we may kick out Gandhi, but the rest of the world will avow and affirm him. So I think that's how I see India today in the politics, the society, the culture, the economics is profoundly un-Gandhian, uh, more or less. But, as I said, he doesn't belong to us alone. I'm going to give you one last comparison. This may strike you as completely bizarre, but reading the book, it struck me that there are so many sides to Gandhi, and he is, he's ubiquitous in culture in ways that go beyond politics. Personally, remind me of someone who's completely opposite from him, which is Nietzsche, in the sense that there is the political Nietzsche... There is the anti-political Nietzsche, and there's the kind of post-political Nietzsche, the Nietzsche who's trying to take people beyond politics. And you get those sides to Gandhi, too. There's political Gandhi, there's, there's the Gandhi who's, in a way, pushing back against a political world. And then there is the kind of Gandhi who 
transcends politics, and, and I think the global Gandhi potentially transcends politics. Which one in your mind is dominant? So having written this life, I'm not asking you to compare him to Nietzsche, but it just partly because he's on T-shirts and Nietzsche is on, you know, it's that sort of... Well, I think it's, uh, the political Gandhi is now more or less irrelevant because you know, formal colonialism has ended. Non-violence, yes, is a uh, form of protest. I think in many ways, I think his message of interfaith harmony, you know, I think Gandhi is opposed both to religious fundamentalism and to the aggressive atheism. Narendra Modi and Richard Dawkins would both find Gandhi problematic, right? And in a world driven by religious misunderstanding, sectarian conflict across the, you know, not just in India, but everywhere, I think it's his message of respecting and understanding religious diversity and negotiating your way through it, which I hope uh, will come back in the 21st century. And is that a message that, so negotiating your way through it, I'm just going to push you on this, is negotiating your way through it a political strategy, or are we talking about something, I mean, in the end, when we're talking about the fate of the planet here, we're talking about insatiable consumption, and there's it's a part of Gandhi that sees that politics no, is part of the problem. It's political and social. So at the level of the state, you need a state that is not a denominational state, that is not a theocratic state, that is not a majority state. It's a state unlike Israel or Pakistan, you know, at the level of structures of law and the constitution. But everyday social life, you know, I think in some ways, for example, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an internet visitor to this country, but some parts of this country, London preeminently, have handled religious difference much better than the French. You know, at the level of everyday social life, you know, uh, and I think... This has to be toleration and respect for people of different lifestyles. It has to be encoded at the level of everyday life and also guaranteed by the state. So both are important. We'll tweet the link to Ramachandra's book and also to an episode we recorded with Pankaj Mishra a while back talking about Modi, Trump and populism in contemporary Indian politics. A transcription of this episode will be available too if you want to read it. Back to business as usual on Thursday. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.